0: This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 333. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and uh, I don't have a co-host with me today, but I do have a very special guest, Dave Spaulding from Handgun Combatives. Hello, sir.
1: Greetings. How are you doing?
0: Doing fantastic, man. Uh, really, really uh, pleased and, and honored to have you on the show. Uh, honestly, far too late. Uh, should have done this a while ago, but uh, you know, you're a busy guy, and things things work out the way they're supposed to work out. I think.
1: Well, you got me here now, and thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so today, real quick, people, uh, again, yes, we're talking with Dave. We'll get into that momentarily, but a couple of quick sponsors of the show. And this is honestly, in full disclosure, just a bunch of self-promotion. <laughs> First of all, our, our membership program, GuardianNation.com, I would just ask you go check it out. You can take advantage of 14-day trial free. Just just check it out. See if it's, if it's for you. Great. If it's not. Move along. That's all good. Guardian, uh, Not Guardian Nation. Well, you can go to GuardianNation.com to learn about Guardian Nation, but to take advantage of the 14-day trial, go to concealedcarry.com forward slash 14-day, 1-4-D-A-Y. Um, other sponsor today is an honorary one, and uh, whether he needs it or not, Handgun Combatives is an honorary sponsor because Mr. Handgun Combatives is right here. <laughs> so. You. So, com. that's where you can find Dave Spaulding and his classes and uh, products in your store, too. I was actually just exploring that last night, Dave. I, I don't know that I'd really looked that deeply in your store, and I went, holy crap, he's got a whole bunch of stuff in here. Like,
1: well, it's, not, it's not my store. It's my daughter's store. Fair, fair. My daughter, my daughter and son-in-law, my son-in-law, Darren, who also does all my marketing stuff. They sure. they run a lot. I, um, I make a few recommendations here and there, but other than that, I'm not involved in it.
0: Sure, sure, sure. Uh, But, you know, I I was really impressed. uh, I was not expecting to find, like, Glock parts and all kinds of fun stuff in there. So
1: They did a good job of selecting things that are actually useful because, you know, you go on some of these web stores and there's just like, well, who would need this or who would need that? But they've got a small collection of things that are actually useful. Yeah. They come in.
0: Yeah, I agree, and you know, and speaking of useful, maybe maybe this would be a good place to start. So why don't we? I've got an interesting segue that we can do right here, and that would be let's talk about sights because sights are a critical component to any defensive hand handgun or or defensive gun. Period. Uh, you got to have sights, sights that you can see, sights that you can aim properly, or else your rounds are not going to go where you intend them to go. So that was one thing I was, I was looking at. You had some sites uh, there in the store, and I was like, that's pretty cool. And, and I, also I read a, an article, too. Uh, you, you were talking about Heine sites and uh, you know, and, and, and kind of what, what you liked about, the, about those sites, uh, which I ha- also happen to like that design as well. But let's talk about that a little bit. What are your thoughts, Dave, first on, on good – like what makes a good quality, dare we say, combat site?
1: Well now we're talking about a combat site. Yeah. Because if we're talking about what I would consider a combat site, something that will use be used relatively close in a fast and furious type of event, then my feeling is is that the site should have a colored front, it should have a pretty flat rear sight. And it should be able to be something that you look through quickly, truly flash on that color and depress the trigger. It's probably not going to be the kind of sight that you're going to want to stand back at 25 yards and shoot the black out of a B-8 bullseye. Yeah. Because, it's you know, that's that's a different type of sight. And when people are selecting sights, you've got to kind of, what is it you're looking to do? You know, well, I've got fiber optics on my sites, but those things are like pinpoints. <laughs> In a situation where you're moving back and forth and you're bringing the gun up and you're trying to get just a visual reference on that site, are you going to be able to see that little pinprick of red or are you going to want something that looks like a traffic cone? Now, traffic cone may be an exaggeration, I realize but you're going to want something that you can catch because you're not going to get that equal height, equal light kind of a a sight picture. You're just going to get a flash of something out there in your field of vision that tells you your muzzle is where you want it to be so you can depress the trigger. So that being the case, I I like a colored sight. I like a fairly flat rear sight. Um, Tritium is fine. If you want tritium, that's okay. I'm not convinced it's critical. But I think you want something that you can find quickly, can use roughly, and quite frankly, actually utilize while you're staring at that thing which is trying to kill you. Yeah. Because, you know, all this rigmarole and scientific research, the eyes can't do this, the eyes can do this, and and, and stress or do rest. I think the biggest reason that, from all the interviews I've done, the biggest reason people don't see pistol sights in a close quarter situation is because they're looking at that thing, which is trying to kill them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah. you need to have something you can just flash on. Okay. There, my muzzles lined up, press trigger, but I'll also clarify, I think a good trigger is more important than good sights.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't disagree with you there. And also probably even more important still is how you work that trigger, you know, cause, uh, you don't have a good trigger press, you're going to struggle even with the best of trigger.
1: Well, and and that's why I, it, it, you're not really pressing the trigger. You're depressing it. It's depressing. It is defined as to apply a constant pressure to a breaking point. And that's what you're trying to do with the trigger. You're trying to truly depress that trigger to the rear, getting the gun to go off without involuntarily using the rest of your hand. That's tough to do because anybody that has thought about this realizes you got four fingers that oppose a thumb and the hand is designed to do this, not this. So when you're depressing that trigger and it's got snags and glitches or it's overly heavy, what's the chance that you're going to do something like this to try to get that gun to go off? And right there is the single biggest problem with shooting a handgun well.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, I, that's been my experience as well as an instructor, just watching students through the years is, is something relating to that and, and, and less so about what the trigger finger is actually doing a lot of times, but more what the whole hand is doing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's tough to isolate the, the index finger from the hand. Consider this Riley, mm. how many times through your work day, and and I don't know what you, what you do. I think you do this for a living, right? Yeah. You're not manufacturing stuff. Think about a guy that's manufacturing something all day long, but how many times in a day do you do this versus doing this?
0: Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm picking up somebody, a cup right now.
1: Somebody that's manufacturing <laughs> something probably does this tens of thousands times sure. a day. Sure. Then we go and do this maybe once or twice a month. Yeah. Well, every time you do this, you're undoing this. Yeah.
0: And, and for so, those that are listening and not able to actually see the video feed, I mean, what Dave's describing is how many times do you actually pick up objects in your life where you're using you're using your whole hand like it was meant to be used, right? You got four you fingers four and an opposable thumb, thumb, so you yeah. pick stuff up, and you do that thousands of times over the course of a week or a month, and then you, to your point, you're saying how many times do you go to the range and work on this trigger finger and isolating right. it from the rest of the hand
1: and not just isolating it from the rest of the hand but keeping consistent pressure with the remaining fingers and thumbs so that they're not moving yeah. because keep in mind a pistol's a big lever and what you do with this pinky finger and i'm holding it up for those that can't see it what you do at the bottom end of that grip greatly affects what happens at the muzzle end so not only is it your trigger finger independently working. It's holding those other fingers in place with a consistent tightness. Mm. And the reason for a smooth trigger is as you're depressing that trigger straight to the rear, if you get a glitch or a catch or a snag involuntarily, you're going to want to tighten that hand down to get that finger to press through. And it's, it's really, really tough.
0: Yeah. Yep. I'm with you there for sure. Um, do you do any, uh well, I don't know. I don't know if you do now necessarily. Cause I mean, you, you are an experienced shooter. You've been doing this a long time, but do you, or have you ever done in your life, uh, any hand strengthening exercises? Sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. 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 Um, probably up in just about a year or so ago, because you know, mm. now I'm, I'm getting arthritic. So mm. you gotta be careful of the things that make your hands hurt. So I've kind of backed off from it, but I used to do a lot of, uh, of hand exercises and then you know things that isolated the index finger and and you know there's there's actually hand squeezers that have basically a pseudo-trigger in them and but yeah I mean I did that stuff for a lot of years and it and it does help. You know, the tighter you can grip the gun, the more grip strength you have in the pistol or excuse me, the more grip strength you have in your hand, the more consistently you can maintain grip pressure on the pistol grip. Yeah. The less grip strength you have, the more likely that it's going to convulsively uh, interact with the pistol grip.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, I've got these uh, grip masters and I've got, you know, the the spring kind of clamp, you know, things as well. And, and, and a lot of times people will use these, right? And they'll kind of, they'll, they'll either do the whole hand or they'll work maybe individual fingers. But one thing I like to do is actually work and, and just compress that. And maintain that with the three fingers and then mm-hmm. just do some repetitions of working this finger without feeling like I'm you know losing grip or
1: hold it snugly, yep, work the trigger finger alone and watch to see if your thumb is moving. No, actually apply pressure on your trigger pad right there. Okay, yep. Watch to see if your trigger finger moves or your thumb moves.
0: Yep. How does that look?
1: Does yeah, look okay? looks pretty good. Okay, Put good. Your thumb <laughs> What's that thumb forward like this? and do Oh, it. sure. Okay. Because that thumb moving can make a big difference.
0: Yeah. It's, it's yeah. hard. Yeah. It, it's, it's what
1: harder. What is, looking at it. Yeah. Looking at what your hand is doing really connects well with your brain. You know, you can sit there and just kind of mm. feel it, but feel it and look at it and see, Oh, wow, look, man, that, that thumb really is moving, you <laughs> know? And yeah, same as believing,
0: right. Yeah, and that tells you that, I mean, that's what you're doing. You're trying to hold a, a pistol in your grip uh, firmly so it's not moving, so you have a good firm grip. And then you got, you're got you trying to move that trigger finger, and you're exactly right. If if there's something else going on with the thumb or with those other fingers, if something else is moving while I'm doing this, the gun's going to move on you.
1: Isolate, isolating the three lower fingers and the thumb and allowing the index finger to still move yeah, is the single most difficult thing to do when shooting a pistol. Yep, yep. Your hands wants his eye to do it.
0: Absolutely. You know, I was just reminded the, the other day because uh, I think we may have even talked with him about it on the podcast. I can't recall. I know I've had conversations with the man, but Jerry Mitchell, like, Uh there's this, there's this legend, and I know it's true uh, because he's told me himself, uh, where, when you know, back in the day when he was just really, you know, like when he was starting to get into really competitive shooting, which was very early on for him, uh, he carried around with him a blank frame you know a revolver frame with a trigger and everything and while he's driving is just sitting there doing trigger presses mm-hmm. click
1: yeah, click John Shaw did the same thing
0: yeah and, and i was thinking people wonder what's the magic sauce to Jerry Mitchell's you know magic super fast trigger finger and it's like you do not just thousands or tens of thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands you do maybe millions i mean look look at how What's fascinating to me about that, Dave, is that uh, he's taking advantage of really what for most people is downtime, driving, mm-hmm. and working on something productive. And that's that's what I think the magic sauce is, is, is being committed to, if you, if you care enough to shoot well, and if you care enough to learn skills to fight, then you got to do certain things to take advantage of, of time and make it a priority in your life.
1: Well, he was he was doing enough trigger finger repetitions that it was keeping up with his normal daily routine of of using the hand, and that is probably a big reason he can do what he does.
0: Yeah. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Now, while it may not be your gun or even the perfect trigger, you know, because it's not a perfect uh, copy of say like a Glock trigger, but I've taken now to taking my cert gun with me in the truck, and while as I'm driving, just click, 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 and just getting those repetitions. And again, focusing on isolating the trigger finger, moving it while I'm not moving you know, the rest of the hand. And, and uh, I, I think it's making a difference. You know, I'm not looking, not looking at sights, not looking at anything. I'm just going through repetitions. But I'm occasionally I'll look down and look at the hand and look at what's going on. But obviously i got to watch the road. But I'm paying yeah. it close attention to what I'm feeling and, and, and trying to make sure I'm aware of if I'm doing anything funky
1: hear what i'm getting ready to say to you okay go ahead the felt aspects of shooting are grossly underrated Mm. everybody wants to make it a visual exercise but it is also a felt exercise trigger being one of them the grip pressure of the hand is another one uh the angle of draw would be another one you know reloading you know the reason people screw up a reload is because you don't have that perfect alignment with the grip and the magazine. But you know what? If you take notice of what it feels like to do that correctly, mm. you can get a lot better at it. But most people don't get in touch with the felt out the felt aspects of those essential skills. And if they do, they'll, their improvement will acceler- accelerate greatly.
0: Wow. That's a truth bomb right there. Write that down uh get in touch with your feelings your feeling side yeah.
1: yeah that's the sports physiology side of me coming out
0: yeah you know and i, I, and I we may come back to that but i i want to jump real quick back to the sites thing real fast because there are a couple of questions and so i, I do want to ask um the one thing that i that i notice is i'm looking by the way at your sites that you have available for sale in your daughter's store uh it, <laughs> so you have the cool. can- the, yeah. <laughs> so you have the cap sights, right? And really what we have is, is a front dot that's high-vis, you know, it's brightly colored, uh, and it's kind of squarish. Uh, and then a rear notch that's also square. And I've, I'm familiar with that with that sight picture, and it's a good one. It works very well. Uh, what I notice in using sights like that, you basically have blacked-out rear, really bright front, is that you get really good contrast. And contrast, I think, is key because when your front sights and your rear sights sort of look similar or the same, then they're very easy to lose when you're trying to go fast or when you're under stress. Mm -hmm. So contrast, I think, is key. Um, I wanted to ask. uh, A
1: lot of research in that cap sight.
0: Yeah. Maybe while I pull up this question, maybe you could explain some of that for us.
1: Well. When I developed the capsite, now in the Ameriglo catalog, it says that Rick Callahan and I developed it. Rick Callahan bankrolled it, (laughs) but you know, he, he wanted to do something, he wanted to do something different. And I wanted to do something truly combative, not just the typical. So I went to an eye surgeon Mm. and basically interviewed this fellow about what you can and cannot see under the duress of a fight. And you know, there's a whole lot of malarkey out there about what you can and cannot do and you know you want to be a little bit judicious when you're reading that stuff but you know we sat down with an eye surgeon and the funny thing was is we met with him and I explained to him when I was looking forward he kind of gave me some generalities of the eye and how it functions and then the next time I met with him I had a board and basically what I had is different popular sites lined up on it mm. and we sat it on a table and he got down behind it and he looked at one. And then he, he looked at the next. And as he moved down, you could see on his face that he had this look of befuddlement. And I finally, I said, uh, Doc, what are you seeing? And he says, well, if I understand what you just told me or about sighting a pistol, is that you want to have this equal height, equal light thing. So basically you want to have an equal spread on both sides and you want it to be straight across the top. And I said, yes, sir. So you're basically taking straight edges and 90 degree angles and aligning them. Yes. Why do you have round objects on it? I knew that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Tradition mostly. He says, well, it's optically confusing. How do you expect to line up three round objects and make them line up straight edges? Well, as soon as you say that, you think, well, that makes a ton of sense. So the front color should be square. So you put a square in a square and that's where the cap site came from. It's a square in a square. Now we have different configurations of the rear. Um, I originally wanted just a flat black rear sight, but our beta testers, Because of all this long distance shooting that everybody wants to do. You know, they want to shoot at 50 yards in the event they have to confront an active shooter and all this kind of stuff. Well, they wanted a way to align it at distance. So we put a little line underneath it. And we basically told people take the front square, turn it into a rectangle. At close distances, ignore the rear notch or the the rear line on on the notch. Then the second iteration, what he calls the spalding, is the flat black serrated. And then law enforcement, they got to have them rear globes. If they don't have them rear tritium globes, they're getting ripped off. So we made a cap LE version, but they all use the square front sight in a square rear window. And that's the reason for it, is a square and a square. And if you give it a chance, it will make your alignment not only faster, but more precise. But I'll be the first to tell you the cap sight's not designed... To shoot B eight bullseyes at twenty five yards, though I can, I can do it. But I've been using them for a while. You know, people will say, you know, if I've got my Dawsons, and Dawson's a great product, I'm not bashing them. But everybody's got their Dawson Precision with their thin front sight and their little, and you know, they they can shoot more precise with those. That's because they're a precision sight. Um, Try to do a fifteen to the third with the the Dawson, and and tell me that it helped you. Know what I'm saying,
0: yeah.
1: So yeah. you know, Absolutely. it depends on what you're looking for. You know, what you're looking for in a pistol. Yeah. So um, we do have what we call a a a cap p a cap precision. It's got a narrow front cap sight and then a very narrow rear window on on the rear sights for people that want to try to do that. So, but that's yeah. what the cap sight was intended to be. And then the colors. We went with that safety chartreuse, that lime green color first because we had seen a report, I believe it was Miami-Dade Fire Department. They did a research study wanting to find out what was the best color for fire trucks and things like that because people tended to be ignoring their red fire trucks in traffic. And there was a concern that people had to gotten too used to fluorescent orange because it was on every traffic cone everywhere, and people just started ignoring it. And that chartreuse color was the thing that jumped out at most of them. And if, you've seen now lots of traffic signs and hunter's vests and stuff are being done, that safety chartreuse. So that was our original color. Though there were still a lot of people that wanted the fluorescent orange, so we we did that too. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I'll tell you, that color, you you, you can't miss it. It, it, it's a it's
1: a fighting sight. I mean yeah. a combative application pistol sight. It's 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 yeah. not the it's not intended to be anything else. Yeah. It's intended to be used, you know, 15 yards and in very very quickly, a true flash sight picture where you may be staring at the person trying to kill you, but you bring the gun up in your eye target line, you get a flash of color and depress the trigger. Yeah. That's what it's intended to be. Almost like a mini red dot site without the mini red dot site. Yeah. This
0: is an interesting question. So I'm going to ask this. I'm pretty sure I know how you'll answer it, but uh, but I've never heard this asked before. So we got to throw it out there. It, are there sites that are better or easier for cross-eyed dominant people? Wow. That's what I said. I was like, wow, i that's an interesting probably, question.
1: Probably a mini red dot site. Yeah. Because you don't have to get your eye in that really small alignment with a, with a set of iron sights. Uh, as you know, with a mini red dot site, you do have some degree of play within that TV screen. So that may be a little bit easier to use provided the shooter understands that the red dot does not have to be in the direct center of the screen. That dot could be all the way over to the left, but because it's parallax free, press the trigger, your, your muzzles on target. So that being the case, that may be something that will be easier to do because they're, they're trying to turn their head, you know, and get that non-dominant eye behind it. They may, that may give them a little play.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, as far as, that's...
1: as far as irons, not that I know of.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, you have to see the irons the same way you would if, with your, if you're not cross-eyed dominant. You got to see the front sight the same way in the notch. Yeah.
1: Like this SRO from Trigicon I'm playing with, it's big. There's a lot of room for a little, you know, for a little play in there. So when they turn their head and they're trying to get that, that non or that, uh, that, uh, dominant eye that's not on the same side as their shooting hand trying to be verbally visually descriptive for people that are listening um there's a lot more play in that dot and that big round screen that may actually work for these people yeah unfortunately it's an expensive option
0: yeah it is and and you still obviously need to be familiar with traditional use of sights and should have backup sights uh, or at least a, a reasonable way of of aiming that pistol in a In a in a backup type you know scenario, provided that that dot goes down. Now it was interesting, Dave. Speaking of dots, uh, you had a J point on your Glock in the class I took with you. What about about a month month ago now? Sideways, yeah, and and you 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 talked about it. Been on that gun for 14 years, Mm -hmm. which is impressive, I might just say.
1: You know, understand though, I'm not punching it up against wood barricade (laughs) and dropping it on concrete and stuff like that, right? Yeah.
0: Yep. Yep. But, uh, you know, just, just to kind of make that point, like it is technology and it can and will fail at some point. You're a big believer in not tempting Murphy or at least.
1: It was an interesting, because it really wasn't a failure. Right. Like we think of it. I mean, everybody talks about mini red dot failure and they all picture this dot just going down and they automatically shift to their iron sights. Well, what happened to me in that class? is it just went right a little bit. The red dot was still there. Why would I shift to my irons? Yep. The only reason I could tell that it had shifted, if you recall, was that sand range that we were on. And I was able to see the impacts in the sand and and notice that it had shifted over to the right. So when I got the little dial out and I clicked it back over, it was right on, but it literally just went right. It went sideways a little bit, but you know what? You wouldn't notice that in a gunfight.
0: Yep. You got to keep fighting though.
1: Right? Yeah. Yeah. You really, really do. But, uh, it was an interesting experience for me. And then the idea that you automatically shift to your irons. Well, you know, as long as the red dot is there, why would you do that?
0: Cause you're going to trust that dot.
1: Well, it's still, it's still being projected. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and let's face it, you know, I was shooting at an eight inch circle at 14 yards. Um, would I have still hit a guy in the chest? Well, maybe it may have been a side a periphery hit, but it wouldn't have been the hit that would have been, been incapacitative. And that incident there in uh, in Fort Collins has made me think a lot about many red dot sites. I'm not, I'm not opposed to them. Yep. You know, I'm not telling you don't do it, uh, but I'm, I'm giving them more serious, uh, not consideration, I guess thoughts the word I'm still still playing around with them and stuff like that. So um, because your failure in your red dot may not be the failure you visualize.
0: Yep. I'm right there with you because that was also very interesting to me to see and to consider, you know, to think about that very thing that as long as you are seeing that dot in that window, you're you're probably gonna keep trusting that dot. Well, I have a dot. I'm gonna keep pointing you know, putting dot on target, and pressing the trigger. But if it loses its zero like it did with you, mm-hmm. uh, that that would be very challenging. In fact, I would say in virtually I mean impossible for you to under stress in an active gunfight to recognize anything at all about it, that anything's wrong. You would just probably keep going. You would um,
1: continue to use the dot because it was there in your vision. Yep. Oh, yeah. I, I If if it goes blank, well, then, you okay, I need to come up with another option. Yep. But why would you come up with another option if you think it's still functioning? Because it was just a click, but it was enough that I was no longer hitting where I needed to hit. And as we both know, you and I both know, if you want to get any kind of rapid incapacitation with a pistol, it's a pretty small, defined part of the body. Yep. So you need to be able to trust that it's that it's on. So that was an interesting little discovery for me, and I gave that a lot of fly, a lot of thought flying home from that class, and a lot of thought since then.
0: Yep. Same. Because same. the eight
1: points back on, yep. I clicked it back, and I've used it since, and it and it seems to be on now.
0: Hmm. Yeah, so, you
1: well, know. And,
0: it yeah, but, and that's yeah. interesting, and you know, and it makes you wonder if it will uh, do it again or not. Uh, if it was a fluke, uh, and some people I'm sure are listening well, That's why we shouldn't use red dots in our on our pistols. Let's cut that thing some 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 slack. It's been on that gun for 14 years. <laughs>
1: it's been on that well on that slide. Yeah, yeah it's been yeah. on that slide for a long time. But you know, um, I've had rear fixed sights come loose. I had it sure. happen this past week. I had a sight just, it it had been on and off the gun a couple times. It still seemed snug, but it was 95 degrees. I had just put 500 rounds through this gun pretty fast. That slide probably got hot and it literally shifted off to the left side. And you know what? I didn't notice it right away. Mm-hmm. I just noticed suddenly I was shooting over to the left and I stopped and actually looked at my gun and there it is the left side of the dovetail. Yep. So it can happen to fix sights as well. Yep. And how many Glock front sights have you seen go by? by?
0: Fly off, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or I've, I've seen sights on other guns that have just completely come off. So, I mean, you shoot enough and you spend enough time around people with guns, you will see that sort of thing happen eventually. Uh, what's your advice to someone that's in a gunfight and they either lose their sights or the ability to shoot accurately because of a, of a shift in impact?
1: You mean if the red dot shifts?
0: Anything. What if what well, if, if your anything, rear sight moved, again, like you were talking earlier? And... If
1: anything shifts. Well, it's going to depend a lot on the distance involved. If yeah. if it's inside that normal 10 yards or so of a pistol fight, I would just use the Jim Cirillo reference, the rear silhouette of the gun. You know, just look at the rear square and, and go to work because that's going to be the best thing they can do. Um, yeah. Keep up on the sights. Just ignore them cause they're, they're no use to you anymore. Yep. So some sort of a, a, rear slide silhouette kind of a reference or, or just hope for a body index shot, you know, a, a, yep. a literally a point shooting. I'm not going to call it instinctual because there's nothing instinctual about shooting, but you're probably enough to point shoot.
0: Yep. Yep. And, and I would argue that, uh, your, your skills really ought to be at a level where you can reliably point shoot out to seven yards Maybe even get decent hits, you know, at ten. If-,
1: if you've got a good if you've got a good trigger and good trigger control, like say a Terran Butler, hmm. you'd be surprised how far out you can point shoot. Body hmm. index shoot, uh, you know, uh, felt index reference, whatever you want to call it, uh, it works quite well. But it's not something that's done instinctual. You have to work on it, and quite frankly, I do. I both sight and point shoot. You know, I practice them both. Cool.
0: Yeah. Their I put it in that category of people often ask, you know, like, what should I be focused on or what should I be looking at when I'm shooting at various distances? And I think, you know, the, and you hear a number of instructors and, and trainers use this type of verbiage, see what you need to see. And, and what does that mean? Well, when I'm at three yards, I don't need to see my sights at all. Even at five yards, I don't really need to see them terribly well. Uh, I need to see that my gun is somewhere in my vision and that it's on top of that that point that I'm looking at on that on that target. And you start getting further out, well, then you start maybe needing to pay a little more attention to front sight and rear notch.
1: Well, it's geometry. You know, the yeah. further you are from the target, the more precise you're going to have to be. But, you know, inside most close quarter pistol fight distances, um, you'll be able to point that gun real well, provided you depress that trigger without you know, you know, opening and closing and squeezing that grip because that's what's going to move the muzzle, yep. not your inability to see the sights.
0: Yeah. Yep.
1: I mean, I think sighted fire, if, if at all possible is the way to go because it does reassure you that your muzzle is pointed where you need it. But if your sights went flying or you felt that you couldn't trust them, then some sort of a body index shot is what you're going to need to take. Well, that'll um, never happen
0: to me. Spe- speaking <laughs> of, speaking of Taron Butler and his amazing uh, body indexing, uh, I'm familiar with a video where he it's on YouTube. You folks can go look it up where he draws out of that holster. He comes out and drills a plate rack at, I don't know, 10 yards, seven yards, something like that from, from the, the hip. hip.
1: From the hip. <laughs> Unreal. I, I mean, he's got a lot of years of practice. In Absolutely. It, it can't be done. I mean, uh, you know, Sighted fire is the only way to go or point shooting is the only way to go. No, it's not the true. It's a mix. It's a mixture. If we're doing true combative pistol craft, it is a mixture of the two.
0: Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, and that comes from experience. You, you, uh, with practice and time at the range, you learn what you're capable of and what you need to see uh, based on your current skill level. I think, I mean, over time, I take
1: my sights periodically. Yeah. I'll just, grab some masking tape or something and I'll tape the side. So now, you know, I'll shoot. I, I'm, I'm good with it to eight to 10 yards. Uh, I can do pretty well. And when I say that, I'm talking about a relatively small part of the body. I'm not talking about a full side steel silhouette making it ring anywhere because you and I both know you, those shots can be two feet apart. You'll still ring that, that steel plate. Yep. So we're talking about a, you know, a six by 10 rectangle, an eight inch circle, something like that. That's what you need to be able to hit. Yeah. And I can do that eight, 10 yards pretty well taping the sides.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Cool. Let's shift gears. Uh, so Dave, one thing that impressed me about going through your course is, uh, how you referred to, uh, frequently to your kind of former life in a way, you know, I mean, you were studying in college, uh, sports science, you know, uh, uh.
1: Sports physiology.
0: Sports physiology. So, so tell us. You know, wh- what impressed me about your reference to that is, in a very simplistic but evidence-based way, you 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 linked that to why we should do things certain way ways, why we should train certain ways, uh, because it goes back to human f- physiology.
1: Well, you know, I I went to college on a track and field scholarship. And like most scholastic athletes, you want it to go on forever. So what do you do? You become a coach. So my goal was to be a high school teacher and a track and field coach. And it actually came in very handy because all the adult learning theory stuff that I got when I was in college has translated nicely to doing firearms training. But even more so was the sports physiology. And basically how the human body functions, motor performance, uh, uh, how to build skills, how to take skill sets and marry them together and things like that. And it was kind of interesting because uh, that stuff was very fresh to me early in my police career when I started. uh, Well, what happened was we formed a SWAT team in 1980. And about 1982, we realized that we needed somebody to be a trainer. So they looked around the youngest guy on the team and sent me off to firearms instructor school, which was fine. And that early, I was being told things in my firearms instructor classes that I knew weren't true, that I knew weren't true. That your hands couldn't do certain things due to loss of digital dexterity and Your eyes couldn't see certain all this mumbo-jumbo science, and I'm like, no, that's not right, but I was the new guy on the block. I wasn't going to question these experienced instructors and stuff like that, so I went along for the ride, but the more I heard, the the more I saw, the more I thought, we shouldn't be doing this stuff this way it's wrong. We're, we're not using how the body functions to its maximum capacity, its maximum ability. And so when I finally started getting enough status of my own, where people would actually say, well, you know, maybe that Spalding guy knows something. I started calling it out. And there was on several occasions that, uh, you would have thought that I had kicked the support out from underneath police training, but like, um, one of the things that I threw a BS flag on very early on is that you do not have the digital dexterity to use a slide stop lever to drop a slide.
0: What? I I was taught that. I mean, it's, you're right. Because you're like early on, this is stuff you were told almost 40 years ago. And I was taught that in police Academy training, like 10 years ago,
1: (laughs) No, this was, this was like in the mid to late 80s. You don't have the digital dexterity to do that. And I'm sitting there thinking, no, I didn't say anything. Sure, sure. But I'm, sure. Anybody that understands how the human hand works knows that the thumb can push down easier than it can push in. So I could hit the mag button, but I couldn't hit the slide stop lever. Are you kidding me? And we had just come from working with revolvers. Do you realize the dexterity that goes into hitting the cylinder latch, popping the cylinder open, hitting the ejector rod, loading rounds into it, closing it, making sure the cylinder is locked and going back. But I I just heard so much, you know, you won't be able to see the sights in a gunfight. Well, that's just hocus pocus. So I, I knew very early on that a lot of the things that were popularly taught were just flat out wrong. But it took me probably into the mid 90s before I started speaking up, mm-hmm. you know, how I inboard manipulate the slide on a pistol. Um, I don't like saddle gripping. I've never liked saddle gripping. It, it to me, it makes no sense. I know it's the way it's popularly taught. People tell you it's the stronger way. It's not the stronger way. And I'll give you an example. And I think I, I think I gave you this in class. Yep. I got a thousand dollar bill in my, there is such a thing, by the way, mm-hmm. they don't print them anymore, but I've seen them.
0: My grandpa I got had a one
1: dollar bill in my hand and it's going to reach out there and it's going to be right there within your grasp for about a second. Nobody will reach down and try to grab a hold of it with their three weakest fingers. Like they pull back on the slide of a pistol. They're going to reach out and try to snag that between their thumb and index finger, because that's where their grip strength is at. Yeah. I mean, as I pick up this glass right here to drink, nobody picks it up like this, pick it up like this. But when it comes to pistols, we actually come up over the top of it and grab it with the weakest part of the hand and then have people of status tell us, well, this is the strongest way. No, it's not.
0: Yeah. Well, and you use the example too, like uh, if we were doing a a tug of war, you know, with a rope, Mm -hmm. think, think about how we naturally talk about human physiology. I mean, what do we go? We, 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 grab the rope with our thumbs over top, our finger, you know, our, our, hands like this, which is similar. We grab that rope similar to how you're teaching how to inboard manipulate the slide on the gun.
1: Whenever I get somebody that just takes me to task on that in a class, I pull out this section of rope. I happen to have with me mm. and I say, okay, we're going to have a tug of war it says, but here's what you got to do. You got to grasp it with both hands but you cannot use your thumb or your index finger. You've got to just clamp down with your middle ring and pinky fingers. I, on the other hand, am going to use just my thumb and index finger. Mm. Ready? Go. Now, who do you think wins that? Yeah. Yeah, you and do, then of course. They they look at me and they go, well, 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 uh, 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 and then they get flustered and they walk off. Yeah. It's a simple thing to challenge, but when you've got instructors that have been doing this overhand grip and teaching it for 40 years, how often do you think they're going to say something like, maybe I've been doing that wrong all along?
0: It's tough. It's yeah. It's tough to get it. So I'm going back to what I learned in my first like legit training courses, which was basically post academy type, you know, uh, handgun courses. Uh I didn't, but and for the record, I didn't attend a a full blown police academy. But I went through all of the same firearms uh, training because uh, I'm I'm basically a reserve, not a full blown you know full time officer. And uh, so, ten years ago or so. I'm hearing all these same things. Can't use those fine motor skills. Gotta, you know, overhand it on the slide. I'm still struggling to get that out of my system. (laughs) Now, I didn't. Yeah.
1: Yeah, It's malarkey. Think about a professional athlete, a, a baseball player or a shortstop or a basketball player. Look at how they use their hands. And they give it no conscious thought at all. And I mean, they're making rapid decisions. Bam, 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 bam. Where, where are they are going to go? They're, they're watching the direction of the ball and they're doing all this. And now you're telling me that when they're doing that kind of stuff, they can't use their fingers? That is the biggest bunch of BS I have ever heard. Yeah. And let me ask you this. How many people out there have a Ruger LCP? Oh, or maybe gosh. a little car arms or PPK? Those little tiny guns that are so popular, a Glock 42, how do you come up over top and do an overhand grip and manipulate those guns? You well, people say, yeah. you, well, you just can't, so carry two. You know what? If you turn the gun inboard and grab a hold of it with your index finger and your thumb, I can do all the same manipulations with a little pistol as I can a full-size pistol. Yeah. And yeah. I actually did it on an episode of Ruger's television show when they had it. With an LCP? Yeah. It was an episode dedicated to the LCP. And um, I basically said, this is how you manipulate a Ruger LCP. And I cleared a double feed and I cleared a, uh, you know, a, a stove pipe and did all kinds of stuff. I just turning the gun inboard, basically turning the gun upside down, letting the stuff fall off, but grabbing a hold of it with my thumb and index and my middle finger. Mm. Yeah. Cause you, you don't, I mean, you may only be grabbing a hold of the little LCP slide with your, index finger and your thumb, but that's enough grip to pull back on it. Try to do that with just your ring and your pinky finger alone against the the heel of your hand. Tell me how well that'll work for you. Yeah.
0: Well, and again, we're talking about uh, firearms with recoil springs that are 16 pounds, 18 pounds at the max. You tell me you can't pull 18 pounds if we were in a tug tug of war with your thumb and index finger.
1: Well, sure you can. I mean, again, if, if, if I
0: yeah.
1: held out $1,000, no one's going to reach out and try to overhand grip that and snatch it out of my hand. They're going to reach out and they're going to try to grab it with their thumb and their index finger because they'll get better grip on the bill.
0: You know what I might do, Dave, is I might grab your wrist with one hand like this in a C-clamp mm-hmm. and then reach up and take that bill out of your hand. How about that? But you
1: know are grabbing the hold of my wrist. With your whole hand, including your index finger and your thumb. <laughs> when you overhand grip, even if you've got small hands and you can get four fingers on the slide, your thumb is hanging off the back of it. Yep. Yep. That's why four fingers oppose a thumb, because the thumb is that powerful.
0: It's a great point. Um, you also brought some... Uh, human and sports uh, physiology into, see, the course I took with you is your kinetic combat pistol course, which is a lot about movement. I mean, kinetic, right? So uh, one thing that came out of that, I mean, a big way is, well, and you talked about it. You talked about it's important to have movement with purpose, but the thing that really kind of stood out to me, Dave, was some of the finer points of detail, like initiating a move just with a lean.
1: Without a, telegraphing.
0: Right, without telegraphing, okay. as opposed if to...
1: you're trying to wind up to get ready to move and try to fake this opponent of yours out, you're, you're just telegraphing what you're going to do. So it's the whole launch off the X thing. If you're going to launch off that X, it has to be explosively and it has to be instantaneously. You cannot be telegraphing what you're getting ready to do or he's gonna see it coming. And then when you do decide to stop and shoot, you have to stop instantly. And as soon as that motion stops, you've gotta be deploying that pistol. So there's some coordination there of your upper body and your lower body, because basically you move from the waist down, you shoot from the waist up, and you have to put the two of those together. And you'd be surprised how many people will move quickly and try to stop and tip over because they don't grasp how to shift their center of gravity in such a way that it brings them upright, ready to shoot. And that's basically the stuff that we teach in that class. It's, it's basically the same way a shortstop would move to snatch up a ball and throw it. Hmm. The physiology is the same. What I've done is I've just taken it and applied it to pistol craft. The, the whole concept of in a gunfight move, in a gunfight, what's that mean? You know, does that mean like you, you turn on the lights in a room and the rats all scatter? No, that movement has to be done with purpose and there has to be an end result to it, an end result that will help you save your own life or the lives of someone you care about. So um, you move quickly, you stop quickly, you shoot accurately. And, uh, there is a technique to it and it it, it has to be done well. And it's amazing. The number of people I see teach movement in their classes that really don't grasp how the human body functions.
0: Yeah. Um, again, back to kind of that leaning, right. Uh, Shifting your center of gravity, which is, that's, that's really the key because you need that on the other end too, as you're going into your stopping point so that you don't topple over uh, and you don't get your feet. Also, you can go too far one way and, and shift your center of gravity too far uh, back the other way and have your feet go out from under you as well, right? So
1: So, so it, it
0: is important to uh, to learn to, and to practice and, and to get used to. Because I mean, you see people in a class like that sometimes doing some of this for the first time ever on a range. And, uh, it, it takes some effort and some coordination and getting used to your example. And you, you said this, I think on the range as well about talking about a shortstop, you know, mm-hmm. how you would move to the side or whatever to get to, uh, to the ball made a lot of sense to a guy like me that played a lot of shortstop back in the day. And I'm like, ah, got it. And I was thinking too, cause one thing that, uh, definitely telegraphs move in a big way is if you end up dropping yourself down, dropping your head, your shoulders, your waist oh, down.
1: Your center of gravity to launch. Right. Like, like what a high jumper would do.
0: Right. And so not only does that telegraph, but it's also less efficient. Agree?
1: Yes. Yes. When you could set that up already by just adopting a fighter stance instead of a shooter stance, because I'm probably going to upset somebody here listening. They're not the same. Shooting upright and, you know, bringing the gun up to your head and all that kind of stuff is not the same thing as a fighter stance where you've got a low center of gravity and wide feet and you're ready to go in every direction. Um, it's it's not the same thing. Uh, you always hear shoulder width apart for your feet. Mm. That's the minimum. Shoulder width is the minimum for a good fighter stance because you want to you wanna be able to move in, in all directions. Again, look at a shortstop. If you look at a shortstop now, a lot of times he's resting his hands on his knees because he's there for nine innings. But if you see when they're getting ready to hit the ball or they're getting ready to pitch, you'll see him come upright and his center of gravity is low. He could move in any direction. And just like someone in a gunfight who is moving based on what your opponent is doing, the shortstop is moving based on where the ball goes. And that shortstop's got to launch instantly as soon as it leaves the bat. Yeah get in front of it the same thing happens in a pistol fight and you've got you got to know how to do it
0: and and again for a baseball guy dude you're you're speaking to my heart because after playing shortstop i moved to to third and well if you know anything about third you know that ball gets to you really fast and
1: what what usually gets to a shortstop knees ankles, hips, you know, they start pulling hamstring muscles because of that sudden launch and all that. I actually took a class on coaching baseball
0: Hmm.
1: and lateral movement was almost a week of instruction. And that's, that's where all this stuff comes from. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's how the human body works. Sports physiologists, sports psychologists, they have studied this stuff immensely. And it so applies to, to pistol fighting because, you know, pistol fighting is fairly close. There's a lot of motion into it, a lot of decision-making and so much of sports physiology and sports psychology applies to it. And a lot of people don't grasp it, uh, it, which is unfortunate because there's, it's, it's just a, a deep well of useful information.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of science that supports everything you're talking about
1: decades or yeah. excuse me, uh, centuries, yeah. centuries of, of research into, into, uh, human motion and motor learning and performance and things like that. Yeah. And I think Some that- of the best research is from the 1950s, hmm. but it was proven to be fact. They've never redone it again because we know this is right. Hmm.
0: Yeah. That would be another great place to, uh, segue, uh, you, you and I enjoyed a couple of meals together when you were here in Fort Collins, which I was very, very thankful for. Uh,
1: and we we, started... we ate and drank together. Yeah. Hard to believe. Yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> well, you, 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 drank the good stuff. I, I, I had a water or a Coke or something,
1: but, uh, good behaving. God bless you. <laughs> I had a designated driver though.
0: <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, so speaking of research and, backing things up with with history and evidence uh things obviously do t- change over time but not not everything changes i mean like like we just got do- got done talking about how the body operates how it moves like nothing's changed about that in millennia uh as far as like how it actually works what we what not we understand about we walk, it
1: not as know. long as we walk walking it upright yep. it's, it's all the same
0: yep but uh we spent some time talking about your research particularly in your early days into gun fights and I don't know how much that comes into play or how much people really understand uh about you in that regard you know as far as how much time you have actually spent talking to people that have had to fight
1: what handgun combatives is see handgun combatives just isn't the name of my book or the name of my company it's a it's I consider it a philosophy a methodology Mm that, that um, I have put into these classes and I document why I do it. But those interviews, which started in 1976 and went up until about four weeks ago. Now, the frequency at the interviews isn't near as, as intense. When I was still on the job and talking to people regularly, and, and I, I, it was pretty frequent. Since I've retired, it has slowed down some. But I still get a chance to sit down and talk to people. But what I heard in those interviews has greatly impacted how I go about it. And then my own personal experiences, which I have a few. I am a victim of my own experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, dovetailed with those interviews is a big, big factor in how I go about teaching handgun combatants. Um, people ask me how many interviews you've done. I, I never really counted them. It's been hundreds. Hundreds you know, which is like, you know, compared to uh, uh, John Correa with his, I don't know how many gunfights he's watched on video. It sounds like a small amount, but you know, I traveled to these people and I sat down with them and we talked for a, so there was, there was more involved in that, but um, it was a wonderful way to age. And I got the, I mean, you'll never replace sitting down with somebody who was at, was, at Bastogne in World War II, what people call the Battle of the Bulge. And he's had 50 years to reflect on what happened to him. And then he sits there, you know, by a fire, and we talk about it. Just those types of reflections and that type of feedback is just invaluable. You'll never get it, you know, watching a video. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I've had the, the wonderful opportunity to interview any number of folks like that. Who have just, just made me really rethink about how we, we do this stuff. And just like my knowledge of sports physiology, uh, many of the things I heard in those interviews did not jive with things that are popularly taught. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I sometimes have kind of gone against the gone against the flow of the river in mm-hmm. how I do things. As a matter of fact, in the second edition of, of Handgun Combatives, Kelly McCann wrote the, the forward of it. He actually says that, you know, Dave Spaulding has gone against the flow here because he, he tells you what's worked, but it's not popularly uh, popular, yeah. you know, not in right now. I really don't care much about fads or how it looks. I want to know if it's going to work. And those interviews are a big factor in that.
0: Yeah. You know, and I, I our second meal together uh, that evening, I kind of treated that, for myself as my own interview of you and uh, I came away with a lot of food for thought brother I mean I was just I was thinking pretty deeply for uh, for a number of hours afterward when I got home and my wife and kids are happy to see me and the kids got to bed and I was still sitting there just just pondering some of the things that uh, that you shared with me and I appreciate that
1: well, uh, I'm, I'm gratified I mean you know um, you and I are never going to agree on everything. You know, if we both agreed on the same things, one of us is unnecessary, sure. you know, so, you know, but, but the, the fact that I got a person of your caliber to think about something, uh, is, is what I do as an instructor. You know, you may not adopt everything I teach you, but if I got you to stop and ponder it, then that's a good thing. Don't you think?
0: Oh, I agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even you know there's uh even if there's something that maybe i don't fully completely adopt i don't forget it. It, it meaning it's it's there and i'm still it's still uh there's a lot of value in in having the different perspectives i mean i'm sure you experienced that as you interviewed all these you know, old old timers, World War One, World War II, Vietnam, and and the, of course on the law enforcement side. and I'm sure you you encountered things where this guy did this a little differently than that guy, and that guy did that differently than that guy. They both still work; they're both still here talking, but there's still things like we you know we can take and we can learn from both experiences.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, uh, overwhelmingly, one thing that came out in all those interviews over these decades was simplicity. Hmm. You don't want any of this stuff to be complex. You want it to be pretty simple and straightforward. If it requires a lot of human movement, a lot of motion, there's a good chance it's going to fail. You want it to be pretty simple and straightforward to perform. Another thing that I've learned, and you've heard me say this time and again, you want to keep the gun between you and them. if at all possible. You don't want it up here doing, you know, rolling over here or do you want to, you want to keep it between you and them in that combat corridor. And that's one of the thing, one of the lessons that really came home to me, if Mm -hmm. at all possible, keep, I mean, when, when I ask people, what's the most important thing in a gunfight and you know, that you get all kinds of answers and then I'll sit and listen to them and I'll say, what do you think about this? Getting the gun between you and them and everybody goes, Yeah, that is kind of important because all this other cool guy stuff you can't do until the guy's between you and them, right? So get it between you and them and keep it between you and them as much as you can. And that requires pretty simple motion.
0: Yeah. A couple last things here, you know, and and sort of building on where we're at right now, because you talked about simplicity and how important that is. And you have what you call your 3S or triple S test? 3S test. 3S test. Can you cover for us what what the three S's are?
1: Talking about a tactic, technique, or procedure. You can apply it however you want. And again, there's no warranties expressed or implied. It's merely a guideline. But number one, looking at whatever this is you're looking at, is it simple to do? If it's not simple to do on the range, in the dojo, or the gymnasium, do you really think it's going to get simpler in the middle of of a fight under the duress of armed conflict? Number two, does it make sense to you? I mean, uh, everybody has life experience, they have formal education, maybe they have task-specific training, maybe they've had experiences. If something doesn't make sense to you, then you have the right to question it. Doesn't mean you automatically chuck it, but you go to the instructor and say, hey, this doesn't make sense to me. Help help it make sense to me. And if if you get something like, I'm the instructor, that that's how I do it, man, maybe your intent ought to go up, yeah. you know. Or it's named after them, and they're not going to change it no matter what. And then last but not least, is it street proven? And I don't mean once. I mean time and time again, Has it been used in fights time and time again. You know, the thing that comes to my mind is flanking. Flanking has been done since before the days of the Spartans. We know flanking works. It's taught in small units tactics. It's taught in the basic police academy. We know flanking your opponent works if you can't flank them. You know, the same thing can be applied to equipment. You know, people will ask me all the time. There's a renaissance now in snubby revolvers. Everybody likes a snubby revolver. I don't don't know why. Mm -hmm. I used to carry a snubby revolver. It has five or six shots. And I really like guns that have 10 or 15, but do what you want. But I'll get the question. Hey, what's the best 38 load? I'll say the 158 grain all lead hollow point. Oh, that's an old bullet. Been killing people for 50 years. Yeah, but it's old technology. Listen to me, kid. It's been killing people for 50 years, still is. I got a report from it just about a month ago. Worked, worked great out of a snubby. Oh, yeah, but isn't there some newer technology? Listen to what I'm telling you. It's been working for 50 years. That's proven. I like that. Doesn't mean there isn't some other stuff out there, but it's proven. Yeah. I put that in my gun and I hit what I need to hit with it. It's probably going to do its job. But that's what it is. Simple, makes sense, and street proven. And yeah. if you can apply those to whatever tactic, technique, procedure that you're thinking about adopting into your skill sets, then it's probably valuable.
0: Yep. You know, <clears throat> I'm going to apply that to, because I get this question all the time. And uh, this is essentially how I answer it. And the question is, Riley, what do you think of these new, uh, some people refer to them as external hollow point rounds. These are these uh, solid, typically solid copper rounds that have the, like the flutes or channels cut in them. Right. And, and so, okay. Is it simple? Well, as, as far as bullets go, that sounds pretty simple to me. Number two, does it make sense? You can explain the science to me and I go, okay. Yeah, I guess that, 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 that makes sense. But, i I don't know where where I'm at on these things but what i what I do know, and I come to that third thing that you just talked about, there's not a lot of history with these things out on the streets yet, and until they're shot with it. what's that?
1: I don't know if anyone shot with it,
0: yeah, I'm sure it's happened, but i don't I don't see anything that's on record uh, I, yet.
1: I haven't heard it yet I, yeah. I, well let's talk about this after we've seen twenty people shot with it
0: right yep and and that's where I keep coming back to well, what do you think about these external hall points i, I you know, show me some some history. Show me some performance, some actual use, and then we can start talking. You know, because well, you,
1: you see could... spin in ballistic gel, and it looks impressive. Yep the human the human body is not ballistic gel. It's not a consistent homogeneous substance. It's skin. It's blubber. It's hard muscle. It's bone. It's hollow cavities. So this spin, I'm just wondering when that's going to apply. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see. Yep. We'll see. Um, I'm not giving up my HSTs.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm with you there. <clears throat> and the HST is, in fact, proven.
1: Lots of people been shot with <laughs> HSTs. It works really good.
0: Mm-hmm. You got that right. And another thing too is, uh, I want to I want to hear this from you again because actually two things I'd like to hear from you because I think this would be valuable for the podcast listeners. Number one, this is what. I can't remember whether you call this a secret. I think you did. I This is how I wrote it down in my notes from the class. What's the secret to winning a gunfight?
1: The person that recognizes the rapidly unfolding situation for what it truly is, adapts accordingly, and applies what's necessary to win the fight. Yeah. It's oh. about adaptation and application.
0: Yeah, and you followed that up with with another statement that the problem is not so much the adapting, but it's being adaptive. Could you could you touch yeah, on, that, adapt, on that?
1: Adapt is defined as to change as necessary, which is a good thing in a gunfight. Yeah, being adaptive is the ability to change as necessary, and the more skill sets you possess to a level of automaticity, the more adaptive you will be. And the person that possesses those skill sets, and I'm not talking about individual skills. I'm talking about sets. You need to be able to take this set and apply it smoothly to this set. And basically in one rapid flowing motion, I mean, draw and fire a shot. Okay. That's great. But if that shot doesn't work now, can you suddenly move laterally? And if your gun stops, can you clear that stoppage while you're moving? You see what I mean? You got to be able to take, you know, different skill sets and, 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 dovetail them together in one flowing motion. And that's where many people falter because they are not truly adaptive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's the secret yeah. to winning a cupboard. Adapt and apply.
0: Yeah. there was, it, you, And I'm not disagreeing at all. I'm actually saying here that because I completely 100% agree. But when you made that statement in class, that piece definitely, I'm like, Bingo. That makes a lot of sense. But there was another key there, and that is recognizing the situation for what it really is. Because that's what allows you to, to be adaptive, right?
1: Much of that is just acceptance of the event. Mm. You're yeah. not, oh, this isn't happening to me. Is this really a fight? You know, it, it's more of uh, you know what, I knew this could happen and here it is, and I know what to do. Yeah, And that's a kind of a paraphrase of Jeff Cooper. You know, it's the peace of mind that Jeff Cooper used to talk about, Mm -hmm. but you know, you're accepting what's going on. You recognize it for a threat and you act accordingly. And that, uh, is a taller order than many people really understand.
0: Mm -hmm. It it really is, especially in a, in the real world. I mean, I could think of Several instances that are caught on camera, most of these being law enforcement, of course, where you sense that the officer is maybe a little bit more behind in that fight than he should be because he has failed to recognize the situation that's actually before him.
1: Well, one of the things that's kind of sad about law enforcement, and and not this is not just the current generation, this is my generation of law enforcement too, but the number of people that are wearing a badge that think nothing will ever happen to them. This yeah. won't happen to me. I'm never going to get into this situation. I'm not going to get into this gunfight. Every time I give somebody an order because I've got that big badge, they're going to do what I say. And then for the most part, they do. And then that one time doesn't happen. And they do not recognize it for what it truly is. And they get their ass whipped or killed.
0: Yeah. That's, that's a sad reality for sure. And, and, and you know who those guys are, and I know who those guys are. Uh,
1: if you've worked with them, you you recognize those people pretty fast. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, applying that across to the civilian context, because civilians, I mean, we, we don't live in that world every day of having to interact with with people and situations that are rather uncomfortable and difficult. Uh, so,
1: the great thing about the armed citizen is they can leave. Yep. You know, the cop is duty bound, he, yeah. he's, he's there. You know, he may step back and call for backup, but he's there. Yeah.
0: And we should absolutely, given the chance, get the heck out because how many problems would be avoided?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, the the Central Intelligence Agency has what they call the hierarchy of threat management. Avoid, evade, and counter only if necessary. But avoidance and evasion is the way to go. You, You don't have to be in a fight. Don't be in a fight. Yeah. And even the law enforcement officer, there's no obligation to stand and get yourself hurt or killed, because you can't win the fight. Back off, and then get back up and come back. Yeah. Get that person later. Um, the old tombstone courage or John Wayne syndrome—some of the things that's been called over the years—it uh, does exist, and unfortunately, it it exists with people that don't have the uh, the wherewithal or the skill sets to actually back up what they believe they're capable of.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: A Dunning-Kruger effect does exist.
0: Yeah, absolutely does. Well, uh, Dave, you know, I and I sense just by comments that we've received here on Facebook from a lot of viewers, uh, people Really thankful to you for making your time and uh, some, some time available today to do this on the podcast to talk with us. A lot of uh, excellent comments here about uh, people uh, really enjoying the content today.
1: Well, I, I'm glad of that, Riley, and, and for you anytime. I, you know, as you know, I turn most of these down. Yeah. But yeah. since I knew you and I knew you weren't going to try to hum me in some way or do something stupid, you know, um, I felt comfortable coming on because I knew we'd have a good conversation and I appreciate you having me.
0: Yeah, man. No, thank you. Seriously, it it goes both ways, and and I'm honored, and I feel uh, uh, much obliged. Um, real quick, folks, uh, Dave is winding down his training schedule. Twenty twenty is uh, is is up on his website. You should go check it out. Uh, those classes will fill whether wh- whether we do anything or say anything on this podcast or not. So, really, this I'm saying this because I want our listeners to have the opportunity, if possible. Uh, go to Dave's website, com. Just scroll down. You'll get to where his calendar is and everything. And uh, find something that's near you or that you could travel to reasonably because if, if you think it would be worthwhile for you to, to train under Dave Spaulding, then uh, your 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 opportunity to do that is is getting a lot uh, shorter and fewer and a lot less options. So,
1: yeah, I, I don't want people to think that I'm lazy. It's just that uh, the idea of living in airports and hotels, it just is not very appealing. Yeah. And uh, I'm getting to the age where I just don't want to do it anymore. So uh, I, I'm, I'm very blessed in that regard. Like you say, I've only got three classes that are still available for this calendar year. And in those three classes, there's only eight slots left. So the 2020 schedule is what to look at. And I've had some of the hosts for some of the early classes, January, February, March, tell me that they're filling. So uh, I, I'm very, very appreciative of the people that are signing up for classes. I'm very appreciative of my, of my students because you know it's not about me; it's about the student. Always has been, always will be.
0: Yep, that's great, man. And, you know, and, and regardless of what people uh, think of you or or what their impression of you might be based on uh, things they've seen in the past or interactions or articles or whatever it is, uh, that's one thing that really stood out to me, uh, Dave was how um you know cuz you you are direct and you do have a very non bs approach to saying things how you believe them to be true and 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 back it up in many in most in virtually everything that you can with evidence uh so i think some people probably hear what you say and go man what a jerk like cuz you're you're challenging their cognitive dissonance you know you're 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 really challenging their their paradigms um but uh here's what i will say on the range, sir, you are a professional through and through, and I've trained under a number of instructors and uh, many other great instructors. But you very impressed me with how professional you are, and also how committed you are to the student, and not just being there because it makes you feel good about yourself.
1: You, these people are are paying me hard-earned money. They're giving up their time. They're traveling there. Um, man, I, I owe them 110%. And that's what I want to do. I think uh, if, if you might if I may address this, I, I think mm. that part of my online image is that I really don't understand online. <laughs> uh you know, the whole Facebook thing and the social media and YouTube and all that, I, I really don't get it. I, I the way people talk to one another, you know, I mean, people say things on, on the internet and, and I know from long personal experience, what they've just said is wrong and it's going to get somebody hurt. So I just say it. Yeah. It's not that I'm like trying to be a jerk on the internet. I, I just say it. And, you know, I'm not really good at nuance. So when somebody puts something type words there, I take them at face value. And if it ticks me off, I ban and delete them. Where hey man, I was just kidding with you. Well, I didn't get the joke. <laughs> so I, I'm not really I'm not really good at that stuff. But I, I am blunt. Yep. But it's it's all for the student. It, it's not about me. Never has
0: been. Yeah. Well, I think as evidence of that, just the fact that uh, that that you are. Ooh, winding things, things down. I mean, like if, if it really was about you and your ego and, and your persona and your, your legend, your legacy, uh, you would probably keep doing it, but you've got a lot to be thankful for. You got a wonderful family, uh, and the, you're, you're spending more time with them and you're looking forward to spending even more time with them. And I commend you in that, sir.
1: Well, I mean, family's everything. Yeah. Um, nobody's going to have on their tombstone. He was a famous firearms instructor. But they may have on their tombstone that he was a father and a grandfather and a, and a friend and things like that. So it, it's all about how you want to be remembered. Um, it doesn't take much these days to be a famous firearms instructor. It seems like all you got to do is just have an online presence mm-hmm. and, you know, a whole bunch of followers. But a whole bunch of followers doesn't mean you've got good content to teach people in class. Because, you know, as Ken Hackathorn says, there is such thing as entertainment, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily training. Training is preparation for the most serious, deadly few seconds of your life. And just because you feel good or like the way you look when you do something doesn't mean it's preparing you for that. And if it's not preparing you for those moments then you're wasting your time, your money, and your energy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and if somebody, you know, playing the guitar for you on the YouTube channel excites you and you want to go take their class, great. I mean, you know, or, or whatever other crazy thing I've seen over the years. But look at the guy that is giving you information and there's a bunch of them that's giving you information that may save your life. Yeah. Because you know, this is all about shooting well enough to save your life or someone you care about.
0: Yep. Well, again, Dave, uh, man, thanks so much. Uh, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, maybe we'll have to do it again. Uh, you say you, 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 extended the offer. So uh, I will uh, probably take you up at that on that at some point.
1: Sure. I mean, if, if, after we hang up here, if people aren't throwing tomatoes and stuff at you, <laughs> like that, uh, get back with me and I'll be glad to come yeah. back on top. talk. Well, there's just all kinds of, of, of stuff out there we can talk about.
0: Absolutely. The
1: only thing I won't talk about is I won't disparage other people yeah. But beyond, because I know a lot of people like to do that. I won't do that, but if you want to talk about how to get better with your combat pistol, I'm always available.
0: Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate that. So we'll, uh, we're going to bid you adieu and, uh, Folks, again, uh, give him some love. Uh, check him out at uh Check out the training schedule. Uh, maybe maybe consider buying some products from the store, supporting not only him but also his family, uh, which is <laughs> cool. And uh, and I like that. I like small American family-owned businesses. So, um, Also, again, just a reminder, uh, if you want to check out Guardian Nation, and we have Dave in there. we You, you were on our live broadcast for Guardian Nation members um, a couple months ago. And so that is in the video archives. So if you'd like to see that, and you could you could do it free just by checking it out, concealedcarry.com forward slash 14 day will give you a free trial. And you can go right into the Guardian Nation member video archives, and you'll find Dave's interview there. And you'll find a bunch of other great interviews from a lot of other top-notch people as well. So, so with that, we are going to let you all go. Uh, take care. Be safe out there, as we always say here on the podcast. This is a reminder to you to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care.